Hi, I'm Michelle Young, GSAP alum, 2012 Master of Science in Urban Planning and founder of Untap New York. Untap New York is a web magazine and tour company about New York City's secrets and hidden places. I created it in 2009 while I was a student at GSAP. I'm also an adjunct professor at GSAP leading the Urban Studies Studio in the New York Paris program. This spring, Untap New York collaborated with Columbia GSAP to create a mini-series of podcast episodes designed to welcome incoming students to the GSAP family. Throughout the series, we explore architecturally interesting and historic New York City neighborhoods that house Columbia University's campus and surrounding communities. This is our first of three conversations especially produced for the school. Today, we have a real treat with our guest, Justin Rivers, Chief Experience Officer at Untap New York. Justin creates and delivers some of our most popular tours, including the underground tour of the New York City subway, the remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, and the remnants of Penn Station tours. His mission is creating and leading unique experiences that help New Yorkers and visitors alike rediscover their city. Today, Justin will discuss the neighborhood of Morningside Heights in New York City, which is home to Columbia University's Morningside campus and to the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. He'll be sharing five hidden spots you should not miss, and then him and I will do a little Q&A together about Columbia, New York City, and more. Thank you for letting me join in. I'm excited to take my work from the streets and bring it over the pod waves. As you mentioned in your intro, my mission is to help people uncover some of New York City's amazing hidden spots. And although abandoned and off-limits places are fun, I find that the best discoveries are often hidden in plain sight and sometimes in our own backyards. So for those folks living in and around Columbia University, you all have tons of really cool hidden gems tucked away in Morningside Heights. But for now, I'll share my five favorites. To start, I really love knowing why neighborhoods and streets have their names, because there's usually a little story tucked away in there somewhere. So the name Morningside Heights actually begins and ends with a rock, uh, a geological phenomenon, not the country in the Middle East. Morningside Heights, the neighborhood, exists because of Morningside the Park, which therein, front and center, is a giant ledge of schist which has a great eastern exposure. Since the sun rises in the east, you can do the math as to why that's the morning side. The rock is also a super good workout if you're running or just hiking the park, just an FYI. You get the word heights because the neighborhood itself is on the high and west end of the ledge, and when the park was finished in the 1890s, it just felt like a good idea to change the name to Morningside Heights to attract real estate prospectors. Before 1890, the area was called Bloomingdale, and was most famously known for a lunatic asylum and orphanage, which made up almost the entirety of the neighborhood. To be super name nerdy, Bloomingdale comes from the early Dutch New Amsterdam era when there was a tiny village known as Blomendal, named after a small village in the Netherlands where flowers were grown for commercial purposes. The village just so happened to also be near the village of Harlem, both in New Amsterdam and in the Netherlands. Broadway in the area today was known back then simply as the Bloomingdale Road before it was assumed into the larger continuous thoroughfare that became the Broadway we know today. But enough names. Let's talk about the spots. Let's start with one right on Columbia's campus itself. Spot one, the Owl in Minerva, Columbia's campus. So right in the center of campus on the steps of Lowe Library is a statue so closely associated with the institution that many people believe it represents the image of Columbia herself. 
Columbia was a mythological female figure made popular in the 19th century to personify America as a young, robust woman. But Columbia, she is not. Actually, she's supposed to represent Minerva, the goddess of wisdom. To be clear, if we're splitting Western mythological hairs, Minerva is the Roman version of the Greek goddess Athena, and no matter which one you prefer, both are closely associated with owls. That's why, to this day, our cultural collective associates the owl with intelligence. The statue is called Alma Mater, which in Latin translates to nurturing mother, and was sculpted in 1903 by Daniel Chester French. There are quite a few of French's works all over New York City, including the four continent statues outside the Alexander Hamilton's Customs House, but the one most Americans know very well is the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. French loved to design his sculptures with a lot of heavy symbolism. So much symbolism that you could stand in front of one of them and talk about it for about a half an hour and still not get to all of the meanings embedded in the image. Alma Mater is no exception. The name itself is supposed to represent the nourishing of a student's mind with knowledge. The crown on top of Minerva's head is supposed to symbolize the royalist beginnings of King's College, which was Columbia's predecessor institution founded in New York City by the British in 1754. Even the armrests of Minerva's throne have names and meanings. I mean, I could go on, but I actually really want to talk about the owl. I love owls, too. And yes, he has a name. It's Glaucus. French was quite obsessed with birds. As a matter of fact, before he became an artist, he really liked stuffing them. Apparently, his first love was taxidermy. Go figure. Now, French is playing with us a bit here. Looking at Alma Mater, you would think Glaucus would be perched on Minerva's open left hand, but he isn't. Call up a picture online, or if you're in the area, go and take a look at her dead on. I'll wait. Keep looking. Keep looking. Can't find him? Don't worry, most people can't, but he's there. As T.M. Reeves says in his book, Secret New York, An Unusual Guide, which is one of my Bibles, by the way, quote, when you finally spy it, it's like receiving a handshake that spans decades, close quote. For a while, it was said that the first student from an incoming class to find the owl would become valedictorian of that class. Then that morphed into the trope that a guy who would, could find the owl on his first try would actually marry a girl from Barnard. I'm not sure if the reverse applied for girls back then. In May of 1970, someone planted a bomb on Alma Mater, which did go off and heavily damage Minerva's throne. So she was removed for a bit in the late 70s for some rehabilitation and then was reinstalled. Bonus points, if you can tell me on what other New York City landmark you can find Minerva hanging out on. Take a few seconds to think about it. That's right, she's sitting out on the facade of Grand Central Terminal in the sculptural grouping known as Transportation, facing 42nd Street. And no, Glaucus did not commute with her to Grand Central. Spot 2, the Guastavino Dome, St. John the Divine. In Morningside Heights, you have two of the city's, if not the country's, greatest examples of religious architecture. One in St. John the Divine and the other in Riverside Church. Both are a carnival of hidden gems. So first... Let's take a walk a couple blocks south to 112th and Amsterdam, where you will see in front of you the world's sixth largest cathedral and one of the largest Anglican cathedrals full stop. Now, looking at it, you may notice at first things right off the bat. First, it's massive, and second, it's not finished. It's only two-thirds complete and will most likely remain that way for all time. 
but that's a different story for a different day. This cathedral could have its own trilogy of episodes, and we're just going to focus on one part of what makes it a marvel. Morningside Heights was chosen as the site of this great cathedral because in the late 1880s, the neighborhood had become a blank slate after the removal of the Bloomingdale Insane Asylum. Then there was plenty of room to build what the Episcopal Diocese of New York was hoping would be the largest cathedral in the world. The architects who were chosen to design St. John the Divine were a duo by the name of George L. Hines and Christopher Grant Lafarge. I say these names multiple times a week because, as Michelle mentioned, I created Untapped's Underground Subway Tour. And yes, the men that designed this magnificent space also designed New York's first subway line back in the early 1900s. They were hired by the Interborough Rapid Transit Company to design the first 28 stations in the city. Here's a bonus gem. If you go to either Cathedral Parkway 110th Street or 116th Street Columbia University on the one train, you are in one of Hines and Lafarge's original 28 stations from 1904. But back to the cathedral and why we're here. Don't worry, I'm going to connect it to the subway one more time. If you look at Hines and Lafarge's original designs for the cathedral, you'll notice there was a massive spire reaching towards the sky dead center of the transept. Well, before you go inside, look at what's there now. Certainly not the original planned spire, but a very giant and very austere masonry dome. Now, from the inside or the outside, it won't take you long to notice that St. John the Divine is a mishmash of architectural styles. Basically, you've got a combination Byzantine and Romanesque revival in the front and then Gothic revival in the back. It was taking so long to complete the cathedral that style preferences had changed. The Byzantine spire no longer worked and a replacement was needed. At first, the idea was to put something up that would be temporary and quick to construct. Enter the Rafael Guastavinos, a Spanish father and son team who had made their mark on early 20th century architecture by introducing something they called the cohesive method of construction. Basically, what made it up was self-supporting vaulted arches filled in with four layers of fireproof tile. The father and son team had installed arches and domes in over 300 buildings in New York City. One of the most famous examples is the Whisper Gallery in the lower level of Grand Central Terminal and the Oyster Bar, which is right next door. The main registry hall over on Ellis Island is another good example, and of course, one of New York City's greatest hidden gems, City Hall Station downtown. Told you I'd bring it back to the subway. That's how the Guastavinos became involved with the cathedral, because they designed for Heinz and Lafarge what people call the Mona Lisa of subway stations. Work on the dome was undertaken in 1909, mainly by Rafael Guastavino III, who was coming into his own as a master builder without having any formal training other than working for his father. He was faced with constructing one of the world's largest masonry domes. The Pantheon in Rome is the largest, with St. Peter's Basilica being a close second. But if you walk inside and stand under this amazing piece of engineering, it may shock you to know that the total time for construction was 15 weeks, with only five of those weeks being devoted to the actual construction of the dome itself. It required little to no scaffolding because of the method of laying out the tiles, and it came in under budget at roughly over $10,000 to build. And although plain in its design, where everything else in the cathedral tends to be ornate, you can't help but marvel at how awe-inspiring it is. The New York Herald at the time called Guastavino's Dome a stupendous work and said that disaster was defied for St. John the Divine Cathedral, subheading, which I love, quote, 
Young architect accepts all theories of engineers and erects a vast structure surmounting St. John the Divine with no support other than its own material tiling and cement, close quote. Pretty much says it all. Spot three, the labyrinth, Riverside Church. All right, so now we're going to travel uptown a bit to the other great church of Morningside Heights, known simply as the Riverside Church located on 120th Street and Riverside Drive. If you look at the Google Maps description of Riverside, it simply says, quote, soaring bell-filled Gothic cathedral, close quote. And right you are about that, Google Maps. Soaring because its tower is 392 feet high, making it one of the tallest churches in the world. Bell-filled because the tower has 74 bells in it. And Gothic because it's modeled on a slightly smaller scale after Francis Chartres Cathedral. Both St. John the Divine and Riverside Church have not only liberal and very welcoming congregations, but also serve as great cultural centers for Morningside Heights. Some of the best concerts I've seen in New York have been at both churches. Speakers at Riverside have included Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, and weekly talks are still done by former presidential candidate and author Marianne Williamson every Tuesday night based on her work with The Course in Miracles. But again, like St. John the Divine, Riverside Church could have its own devoted episode of Hidden Spots, so I just want to focus on one of the neatest, the labyrinth. As you walk inside the church and head down the nave, at the northernmost end, you'll walk up a few steps to the chancel, and inlaid at the center of the chancel floor is a labyrinth designed with three types of marble. This, too, is a copy of the original in Chartres Cathedral, with the exception that Riverside's is only 10 feet across, whereas Chartres is 40 feet. But what does it mean and why is it there? References to labyrinths date as far back as the ancient Egyptians, and one of the most famous comes from Greek mythology with the story of Daedalus and the Cretan Minotaur. Also, we can't forget the movie Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie. If you don't know what that is, or if you haven't seen it, watch it, if only for David Bowie's hair. But labyrinths had a resurgence in the early 1000s in medieval Europe since it was believed that navigating the twists and turns of a labyrinth located inside a cathedral could simulate a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which in turn would lead to the spiritual purification one seeks when going on a religious pilgrimage. Again, the idea is one starts on the outside and makes their way to the center or to their soul. And since everyone travels the same path to the center, it's how you get there that matters. Pretty deep, huh? Some believe that in our modern era of spiritual development, which now comes mainly in the form of more Eastern traditions like yoga or meditation, labyrinths are making a comeback as a means to clear the mind and find inner peace. For years now, the Riverside Church has laid out a portable labyrinth during Lent. According to parishioner Jim Keat, quote, it's easy to stay where you are. It takes courage to take the steps and go to the places you are being called. The invitation is to enter the labyrinth, to trust the path will lead you where you need to be. Close quote. Others say simply about walking the Riverside Labyrinth, quote, it just clears my mind. Close quote. Spot four, the left-looking eagles, Grant's tomb. Our next commute is pretty easy since we're basically crossing over Riverside Drive and heading west to Grant's tomb. Don't worry, I'm not going to make that dumb joke. There's lots we know about Grant's tomb, including that President Ulysses S. Grant is buried there. Okay, so I made a version of that dumb joke, sorry. What you wouldn't know about Grant by the tomb he rests in is that when he died, he was basically flat broke. 
and although he was born in Ohio, his dying wish was to be buried in his last and favorite home, New York City. But instead of a simple grave, Grant, who was considered by most to be a national hero because of his service during the Civil War and his presidency, which helped to stitch the country back together again, was buried in North America's largest mausoleum. Also, FYI, it's officially known as the General Grant National Monument, not Grant's Tomb, except that I'm going to continue to call it Grant's Tomb. After his death, Grant's body was put in a temporary crypt in Riverside Park while funds were raised and architects were vetted for his great memorial. Who won the coveted job but John Duncan, who would go on to design Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn. Duncan's design called upon great military references, like the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus and Napoleon's tomb. The mausoleum took about six years to build, and Grant's remains were eventually transferred to a nearly nine-ton red granite sarcophagus in the center of the structure right before the dedication. Five years after the monument was completed, Grant's wife Julia would be laid to rest beside him. So the next time some cheeseball says, who's buried in Grant's tomb, you can say with full confidence, his wife. Now, for those out there who know Michelle and I, you may know that we are obsessed with the eagle sculptures of the old Penn Station. It's actually one of the reasons we met and started working with one another. New York has sculptural eagles all over the city, many of whom have flown their original coops to perch on new homes. Grant's tomb has two of the most unique. Also, I'm a remnants guy. I love tracing the remnants of old structures, helping to give a voice to their old narratives. So when I heard that Grant's tomb's eagles were eagles and remnants, I was super psyched. As you approach the stairs to Grant's tomb, you may not immediately notice two eagles flanking the bottom of the staircase, and if you did, you probably wouldn't guess that they were not original to Duncan's 1889 design. They actually came from one of Lower Manhattan's most imposing structures, the old post office next to City Hall. Now, some of you may be thinking, uh, there is no post office next to City Hall, there's only a triangular park with a fountain in it. Yeah, well, before 1939, there was a triangular post office that used to sit on that footprint. It was completed in 1871, before the Brooklyn Bridge was even finished, and once we had the Brooklyn Bridge, it was one of the easiest buildings to spot from it, save the Tower of Trinity Church. It was designed in a very, very, very ornate Second Empire Revival style by Alfred Mullet, who also was the head architect of the U.S. Treasury Department. And to see it in pictures, you would probably think to yourself, oh, wow, that's a beautiful building. But in actuality, people hated it. They thought it was just too much. It was simply called by many the monster. According to John Tarnock's book, Manhattan's Little Secrets, the eagles themselves were called irreverent foals by architectural critic Montgomery Schuyler. But when you see them today, they aren't too shabby, especially with those eight-foot wingspans. Speaking of shabby, during the early 20th century and into the Depression, Grant's tomb was basically left to rot and was in pretty sad shape. But it was decided that New York City would play host to the World's Fair out in Flushing, Queens in 1939. So the Works Progress Administration thought it was a good idea to do a spit shine on Grant's tomb in, in anticipation of all the visitors coming into the city for the fair. It so happens to be the same year that they tore down the monster post office, leaving these two irreverent foals without homes. So they were brought up and placed where you can see them today. Now, take a look at them closely. Notice anything? The eagle beaks are both facing the left, not customary when you have a pair of statues flanking one another. Most likely a mismatched pair was brought up to their final home outside of Grant's final home. But no one knows for sure, there's no record. Spot number five. 
at the corner of 125th and 129th Streets. The final spot on our pod tour is a quick but quirky one. It all has to do with street grid, and no city has a more famous grid than New York. Stemming from a unilateral attempt at gridding over the entire island of Manhattan in the early 1800s, an attempt that clearly worked, by the way, the commissioners of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, led by Chief Surveyor John Randall Jr., let a few ancient roads slip through their fingers. Broadway and the Bowery are obvious examples, but there was another tiny one that formed the boundary between Manhattanville and Morningside Heights. It was simply called Manhattan Street, but more on that in a moment. So from Grant's tomb, we head uptown again to the north side of Riverside Park, and there we'll spy a strange corner that defies mathematics, a spot where 125th Street and 129th Streets meet. Now you might be wondering what happened to 126 to 128th Streets. Well, in a sense, they're hiding from us. Again, you can join me here on Google Maps, or if you'd like to take a stroll with me in your ear, go right ahead. If you were to mosey on over to Broadway East from Grant's tomb, you will notice 123rd Street straight ahead of you. Now, walk north, and you'll notice there's no 124th Street, not anymore at least. It was buried in the housing complex on your right-hand side. Keep walking, and you'll hit LaSalle Place. Take note of that, and if you're interested, LaSalle Place was named after the religious order of the LaSalle brothers that founded Manhattanville College up in Hamilton Heights. Keep walking north, and on your left side, you'll see Tymon Place, named after Mayor Daniel Tymon, who had a home in the area. Then bam! 125th Street on the diagonal, which at the corner intersects with 129th Street. Well, the 125th Street you're walking on is an imposter. It was actually this old Manhattan Street I was telling you about before. Manhattan Street used to have a popular streetcar line that would bring people down to a pier on the Hudson, which offered ferry service over to Jersey and access to the Hudson River Day steamers. The streetcar was known to all simply as the 125th Street streetcar, and it actually made the final leg of its voyage by turning off of the real 125th Street onto Manhattan Street at Morningside Avenue. In the 1920s, it was decided that because the streetcar was so popular, Manhattan Street should actually be renamed West 125th Street. What happened to the real 125th Street? Well, remember LaSalle Place? Yeah, that's the real 125th Street. Tymon Place was actually the old remnant of 127th Street. And thus, good old Manhattan Street, now West 125th Street, runs roughshod through the grid and plows its way into 129th Street. When the changes were made, it forced all the buildings in the area to officially change their addresses, and of course, all of the maps needed changing. And that, my friends, is only a taste of some of the more hidden and fascinating spots in Morningside Heights, which means I now get to turn it back over to Michelle. But we decided we were going to flip things around a bit so I could do a little Q&A with her. Now, full disclosure, Michelle, I know you very well since we've been working together for over six years, and I don't even know the answers to some of these questions, so I'm excited to hear about what you have to say. Uh, So I'm just going to ask you a couple things, if that's okay. Uh, First question, what instilled in you the heart of an urban explorer, and how did that lead you to creating Untapped New York? Also, maybe you might want to define what an urban explorer is for our listeners. You know, on a broad level, I think an urban explorer is anybody who walks around with a curious mindset. I also think that people who are ready to discover new things are generally positive, 
um, and optimistic. So I like to believe that you and I could transform any optimist into an urban explorer. But within that category, there's a broad range of what constitutes an urban explorer. The popular definition of that term in the last couple decades has been mostly associated with people that trespass to go into illicit places. Um, this was popularized by the internet, then with Instagram and hashtags like urbex and the like. There's often also an association with abandoned places as well, though I would put uh, rooftoppers, people that climb to the top of buildings, into this category too. But I think those are a small but robust group at one end of the spectrum, whereas most people fit into a more casual urban explorer category. And one can go between the two. So then where do you think you fall in between the two? <laughs> I knew we'd go here. So when I was in grad school and for nearly um, a decade after that, I was definitely breaking into places, going into places I wasn't supposed to be, even if I was on some kind of sanctioned visit. People like me really can't resist uh, and have to know what's on top, what's behind a door or down below. But um, I might turn around and head into another visit and have my professional hat on right after. So these days, I uh, usually have my professional hat on most of the time. Having a kid uh, changed my risk calculation significantly. I was climbing up into uh, a clock tower and globe atop a building in New York last year. And I looked up at this long ladder. And for the first time, I paused before making the decision to climb it. I mean, I still did it, but... I thought about it and um, what the repercussion could be. Uh, but mostly, though, I focus on how to make um, any New Yorker or visitor an urban explorer. I think looking at the city with a sense of wonder makes daily life rich and interesting. Now, I know you very much as the founder of Untapped New York, since I work alongside you there, but... I don't know much about your life at Columbia. What made you choose Columbia as a place to both study and teach? When I was applying to grad school, I looked for somewhere that had a very global outlook. I had taken an urban planning class while I was an undergrad at Harvard, and I remember it being all English garden cities and big dig, but that was back in 2002 or so. And by 2009, education really changed, and it was exciting to see classes at Columbia, GSAP, about sustainability, about informal cities, about global challenges. And first, I did the New York Paris program, which is a certificate program at GSAP where you take graduate-level courses and get to study New York in depth and then go to Paris and do the same thing. I mean, what's better than that? Plus, my studio teacher, Moji Barrett-Liu, was the most inspiring teacher who really changed my life. I teach her studio now, and um, in her memory, as she passed a few years after I graduated, I really tried to emulate for my students that combination of inspiration and rigor that um, she bestowed on me. And then I applied to the urban planning program. A big part of my decision was, first, of course, the really positive experience I had in the New York Paris program, and then it was about staying in New York City. I was almost 28 when I started grad school, and my life was here. I'm from Long Island and grew up partially in Manhattan. I went to college at Harvard, so living in Boston, and worked for Abercrombie & Fitch after college in Columbus, Ohio. I felt like I had finally made it back to New York City and I wasn't going to leave it, and I still haven't. I also found the student body and my professors, both in GSAP and in other departments, extremely supportive of my idea for Untapped New York. 
And that's really what has driven me to keep building the company 10 years later. I'll never forget Moji telling me uh, not to give her any more PowerPoint presentations, but to use the platform online that I had created to publish the things I was discovering. She saw the potential for Untapped New York even better than I could and supported that, and I'll always be really grateful. And all of these experiences uh, continue to be very consistent, even as a teacher at GSAP, where I feel that um, the school has been really supportive of um, how I formulate my studio, um, the areas of New York City that I select each year, and the partnerships that I make to um, make the studio a really engaging um, and almost real life experience. So I think if you're looking for a place that is supportive of new ideas, um, that both has um, the rigor that's necessary in an architecture or design or urban planning education, but also gives you some freedom to um, explore what uh, your passion is within that field, I think um, GSAP is definitely a great place for you. All right. So I can't not ask you this question, being who you are. Um, what is your favorite untapped spot on Columbia's campus? I love St. Paul's Chapel with its amazing Guastavino dome, a kind of a crypt downstairs, and the post-crypt coffee shop, which is like a speakeasy venue with live music. But I also recently got to visit Prentice Hall in the Manhattanville campus. It's this former dairy bottling plant that later became a nuclear testing facility. A former engineer who is an untapped New York fan took me through it, and I just love the layers of history that are all wrapped up in one building. It sits next to these new glass buildings in the Manhattanville campus, so it makes quite the juxtaposition. And what about in Morningside Heights? Well, I always love being on Columbia's campus, particularly at the start of a new semester. It's a little cliche, but being somewhere that's buzzing with ideas and energy is always really inspiring. And the architecture certainly matches it. But I also love the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, that's such a large cathedral is here in this neighborhood and um, even has peacocks. Uh, it's just amazing. And just down the street from that church is the Hungarian pastry shop. Um, it's a real staple of the neighborhood. And um, I have great memories of meeting another beloved GSAP professor there, Graham Shane, for pastries and coffee and talking about uh, New York City. What advice would you give to someone thinking about making New York City their home at this time? New York City is an adopter of people. So like if you allow it to dazzle and amaze you and make you a New Yorker, it will. But you have to really be open to that and be open to the idea that there are so many ways to be a New Yorker. Um, there are also so many places in New York City that you can see or visit or even live in, and there is no way you can understand New York unless you get to know as many of its parts and its people as possible. Um, one idea that I love to give people is uh, to take the subway to the very end of a line and um, explore what that looks like, or take a trip to the outer boroughs and get out of Manhattan. You have to allow the city to speak to you. Um, also another tip, New Yorkers love to help people, even though they usually seem too busy uh, to give you the time of day. But if you stop them, they could be like not, could not be more excited to help you out. 
I love that you said that because uh, I my one of my favorite things is when somebody comes up to me either on a subway platform or in the street or especially during a tour and they ask me directions. Uh, it just makes me feel really good. Uh, and you know that I have my New Yorker cred because we do New Yorkers love to help people. Um, that's it for the Q and a portion. Um, it was my pleasure to be here. Justin out. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Discover more of New York City's hidden gems at untappednewyork.com and find more podcasts on the GSAP website, arc.columbia.edu, that's arch.columbia.edu, and follow GSAP on Instagram and Twitter. Talk to you guys next time on the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.